This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. All right, good afternoon. Uh, I hope you made it through the through those mental gymnastics. Uh, so, uh, you know, we're not just talking about superficial issues here when we talk about a, uh, when we talk about changing how worship is done. Uh, why? Because all these things are completely interrelated. So we're going to move from the false foundation now, which was based on dualism, to the true foundation, and we're going to see how. Uh, God has given us that foundation and its connection to worship and liturgy and thus what it means to have a spiritual worship. So let's bow our heads for a word of prayer as we continue to move on. Our Father in heaven, the Apostle Paul prayed that uh, we might be blessed with all wisdom and spiritual understanding. I thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit that enables us to see the difference between truth and error. And Lord, I just pray and ask for him to be here right now, that he would take these words that are spoken and do much better than I ever could. So thank you, Father, for your grace. Thank you for the promise of the Spirit. And we claim that promise now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the Holy Spirit, the sanctuary, the Holy Scriptures, again, Theological Foundations for Worship and Spirituality. What we're going to take a look at now is the central role of the sanctuary in worship. And I can promise you, you're going to take a look at the sanctuary a little bit differently by the time we're through today and tomorrow as well. Most of the time, you know, we think, okay, well, it has two, two compartments, and in the holy place you have the table of showbread, and that's a symbol of Christ who is, you know, the bread of life, and then you have the, the, the candlestick, and that's also symbolic of Christ who is the light of the world. And yes, all these things are definitely good and true and applicable, but yet we've not mined the depths of, of, this, of this symbol called the sanctuary. And the best way I know how to explain it is that it, it, it becomes the system or the software package. You know that data requires a system. It requires a software package so that you can have a printout. Without that, you don't have it. And so uh, the sanctuary we're going to discover is that system through which we should process all these ideas. And it provides the, it provides the proper framework for understanding God's presence, who is, of course, the most critical, for lack of a better way to say it, the, the most critical component of worship. We're not going to be calling God a component, but he's the, without him, of course, there is no worship. So it's the sanctuary that helps us to understand God's presence. And in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says that the Word was made flesh and dwelt, and in the original language it actually means tabernacled among us, pointing you back to the sanctuary. So Jesus was, had no problem existing in time and space and interacting with God's people. He's, he's more than willing and able to interact with us. So it's the sanctuary that provides us the right understanding of God's presence. It also provides us with the framework for understanding how all the components of worship should relate to each other. It guards against polytheism and pluralism. It makes a distinction between the holy and the profane. 
And I'm only going to point to this today. I'll have to amplify on it tomorrow. The symbols in the sanctuary point to spiritual realities. Just to give you just a little bit of a hint here. The sanctuary that has been revealed to us has a two-apartment ministry. Now, if you decided that you didn't like the two apartments and you wanted to abolish the, the wall in the middle, what you would also be abolishing is the plan of salvation to which the sanctuary then points to. You would be altering that. So when you alter the symbol that God has given, you alter the reality to which it points to. And we'll talk about the implications of that when it comes to worship. So it has a very, very central role, especially for worship. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 25, verses 8 and 9, something that I'm sure you're, you're very familiar with. Exodus 25, verses 8 and 9. And I'm going to go ahead, um, I know there's, there's, there's a bit of material to cover, and so I'm going to go in evangelistic style, rapid fashion. It says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle, of the, after the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. Where did the children of Israel get this idea of the sanctuary. Well, they did not get it from all the surrounding nations, friends. It was something that God had revealed to them. And as we go through um, and look at the, the more permanent structure, we'll see that this is also true as well. First Chronicles 28, verse 19. First Chronicles chapter 28. And verse 19, David here gives a description of the, the pattern of all uh, the, the instruments in the sanctuary. And that pattern, it says, was given by the Holy Spirit. If you look in verse 12, 1 Chronicles chapter 28 and verse 12, let's back it up to verse 11. It says, Then David gave to Solomon his son the pattern of the porch and the, and the houses thereof and the treasures thereof and the upper chambers thereof and the inner parlors thereof and the place of the mercy seat and the pattern of all that he had by the Spirit. We spent some time looking at the relationship between the sanctuary and the Spirit when we looked at Hezekiah's incredible reformation. And so here this pattern that had been given now from David to Solomon was given by the Holy Spirit. And you can't have any greater authority than that. But look at verse 19. It says all this, in other words, all, all the pattern that had been shown to him. All this, said David, the Lord made me understand. Who was it that made him understand? The Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me, even all the works of this pattern. So this is integrated with the, uh, when we talk about worship, it's integrated with the sanctuary. Um, look at 1 Chronicles chapter 15 and verse 16 for a moment. 1 Chronicles chapter 15 and verse 16. This is, this is by the way, where God reveals to David the fact that, um, uh, or I should say, the, the instruments that should be associated with the tabernacle service, all right? Uh, just to back up, because I don't think I'm going to be covering this later on, uh, but in case I do, I'll just mention it briefly. In First Chronicles 13, you have that situation where they're bringing the ark up to Jerusalem, 
and there's all kinds of festivities and all that, and there's timbrels. You can see that in verse 8, and they, you know, they get an A-plus for enthusiasm, but they violated some principles in the Word of God. That's what's, you're not supposed to carry the Ark of God on a cart. And when you're always watching what the Philistines do, you can get in trouble. Hey, the Philistines did that. That's how they bring people into their church. That's how they do things. Let's do the same thing. Well, you know what happened with us, all right? Okay, that's exactly what happened. Uh, and, and as David does a little bit of Bible study, he realizes in chapter 15, verse 2, it says, None ought to carry the ark of God but the Levites. For them has the Lord chosen to carry the ark of God and to minister unto him forever. Uh, enthusiasm that didn't atone for the direct violation. Look at verses um, 11 through 13. David calls for all the priests. So I'm not going to mention all their names there. In verse 12 it says, And said unto them, You are the chief of the fathers of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, both ye and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel unto the place that I have prepared for it. For because you did it not at the first, the Lord our God made a breach upon us, for that we sought him not after the due order. And so then, David then says, or the scripture says in verse 16, David spoke to the chief of the Levites to appoint their brethren to be singers with instruments of music, psalteries and harps and cymbals, sounding by lifting up the voice with joy. Also, if you move to the next chapter, in chapter 16 and verse 4, it says, He appointed certain of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord to record and thank and give praise to the Lord God of Israel. It mentions some of their names, and you think my last name is hard. And then it says, With psalteries and harps, but Asaph made a sound with cymbals. Benaiah also and Jehaziel, the priests with trumpets, continually before the ark of the covenant of God. So when you talk about the arrangement of musical instruments, there are psalteries and harps, which are basically stringed instruments. Then you have trumpets and cymbals. Now most people say, aha, the cymbal. Therefore, let's drag the trap set into this, okay? And they suggest on the basis of the cymbal being used in the sanctuary service, then we can, you know, then we can drag, you know, the drum set uh, along with all the syncopated forms of rhythms that come along with that into the into the service. Why? Because of the commonality of the symbol. Well, friends, even those who want to justify the use of rock and jazz in the church today are all in agreement regarding the fact that the symbol was not used to beat out the, you know, the rhythm of the song or a stanza in the song. They're all in agreement concerning the fact that it was not played that way. So it was not played like like this. It was used almost like a call to worship to announce the beginning of a song or a stanza in the song. So you're not standing on very solid ground if you want to make a typological argument there. Because it just simply wasn't used that way at all. It could have been, but it wasn't. More like a call to worship. So the, the, the instruments, the stringed instruments, were the ones that were giving accompaniment to the massive choirs that were there. Just to nail this thing down, that this, this whole arrangement was given by God, let's go back and read a verse that we read in our previous session in Second Chronicles chapter 29, verse 25, when Hezekiah enacted his reforms and began to cleanse the sanctuary, notice the immediate effect on worship. In 2 Chronicles 29:25, he set the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with psalteries, and with harps 
according to the commandment of David. That's pretty good authority. And Gad, the king's seer, and Nathan, the prophet. That's pretty good authority, too. But it continues on by saying, for so was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets. So it was God who arranged this whole thing. And I believe God does things for a certain purpose. And we're going to look at why he chose this liturgical arrangement and what that tells us then about worship realities and, what, and about a biblical philosophy of music. You see, God gave the blueprints for the sanctuary and God commanded which instruments were to be used and which were not. And this was meant to be binding. You see, because in the days of, in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, God's people were in Babylon. And God had called them to come out of Babylon and to rebuild the temple. Now, notice with me there in Ezra, uh, just go, I guess, maybe a, a book or two over. Uh, Ezra chapter 3, verse 10. They're laying the foundation here for the temple. And, and it says, now this is 600 years after David had made this, this decree. And 300 years after Hezekiah. It says, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. Now, remember, you had God's people in a literal location in Israel at that time. All right. Uh, and hopefully we'll get to some of the principles because we have a worldwide church now. And so people come out of every nation, kindred, tongue. And how are we going to put all these pieces of the puzzle together without completely destroying our individuality or our culture or the Word of God? Do it wrong, and we'll be like Jeroboam. Do it right, and we can be like Hezekiah and enact some serious reforms. Uh, and so in Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 27 to 36, Nehemiah also calls attention to the instruments of David that had been set up. So here, 600 years later, these were meant to be binding. Now, God has also called us out of spiritual Babylon, and Jerusalem is not down here on this earth, but is up in heaven. And so we ought to look there in order to figure out what a doctrine of worship is. I did a music worship seminar in New York not too long ago, and of course, you know, in New York, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere, right? Now, if you want to head into the music and, 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 and uh, music and show business and Broadway, well, you're not going to go to some little town in Michigan where I was from or, or even a smaller town in Amity, Arkansas, where I am right now. That's not where you're going to go. You're going to go to New York. If you really want to know how to worship God, then we're going to go to a place where they really know how to do that. That's up in heaven, right? Doesn't that seem to make sense? I mean, that's where they know how to do that. And so we ought to draw our principles from there. So we've come out of spiritual Babylon, and as God's people went through that bitter disappointment in 1844, in Revelation chapter 11, verse 1, it said, rise and measure the temple of God. Evaluate that temple and use that as a basis for understanding the plan of salvation and how we ought to worship. Well, you know, in the Old Testament, uh, you know, there was a center. There, you know, they literally had that, that temple there. But something happens, you know, when you're reading all the crazy stuff that I need to read for my dissertation, all of a sudden, there's no longer any center anymore. And I'm like, well, wait a minute, guys. <laughs> Hold on a minute. <laughs> yes, there still is a center. What about the sanctuary that is in heaven? The earthly was a, mere, was a mere duplicate copy of that. 
And it says in the book of Hebrews that out of all the things that I've written, this is the main point. In Hebrews chapter 8, verses like 1 and 2, that we have a real sanctuary where our high priest ministers up there. The real tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. And so we do have a center. In Revelation chapters 4 and 5, it's a magnificent scene there. And it's obviously taking place in, in, in the sanctuary of God. There's a trumpet call to worship in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. In Revelation chapter 4 verse 8, the angels cry out, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Reminiscent of Isaiah chapter 6 where the prophet saw, saw the Lord high and lifted up in the sanctuary. Furthermore, they prostrate themselves and take off their crowns. Now the harp is used as the only accompanying instrument in the book of Revelation. That would make sense because you got stringed accompaniment, which was the which was the shadow, which was the you know the, the the earthly, and so it would make sense that you have the harp as the accompanying instrument. And so we'll discuss the implications of that. There's a cosmic universal praise in 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 that. It in Revelation four and five it blends awe, holiness with joy and praise. Those two qualities must be there in any worship service. And they are there in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. Let's see. So the singing and the instruments are connected to the reality of the heavenly sanctuary. So just like a building is built with the foundation first and everything else goes on top of it, that's what we have here. That's what we have. Now remember, with Jeroboam, you have, if I can get to it, um, in Second, I'm sorry. In First Kings chapter 12, verses 25 to 28, the very the very thing that Jeroboam did, the the, the drastic error that he committed was that he in setting up these two calves of, uh, of of gold, the one in Dan and the other in Bethel, he automatically turned his back on the sanctuary. And when he did that, it said he took counsel. And when he took counsel, he didn't get it from the first five books of the Bible. So in this way, the sanctuary and the scriptures are really interconnected. Once you turn your back on the sanctuary, then the forms of worship come from nature, they come from culture, they come from human philosophy as well, as we studied in our previous session. So we cannot afford to turn our backs on that sanctuary. Thinking of the ancient future church, the goal of emergent worship is to join the future with the past. And by the past, they don't, unfortunately, they don't go all the way back to the Bible. They go back to the early church after the death of the Apostle John. And so they're seeking to unite these two, these two poles together. The craziness of modern worship with its music and its art and all those types of things with ancient worship, meaning the, the, the emphasis on the mass, and, and incense and, and candles and all those types of things. So they're seeking to unite all those, all those elements. Uh, this was a very interesting uh, commentary, and I want you to see that a lot of Christian theology is based on philosophy. This was quite a quote. Uh, classical theism, a way of understanding God, has been the position of Western Christian orthodoxy from Augustine, Aquinas, Scotus, Luther, Calvin, and their followers to the present. It is undeniable 
that although the Bible is its source and standard, traditional Christian theology has been shaped, what word does he use next? Significantly by the legacy of Platonic philosophy. All right? Significantly. That's why when we discussed the Mass and the understanding of the Eucharist, it's completely integrated with Platonic Aristotelian philosophy. There are two strands of Platonic philosophy. We discussed the first one. For those of you that were not here, um, this is going to be, this may be muddy. Reality is composed of an unbridgeable chasm between God and the world. Things in the world are made up of matter and substance. Well, this is the basis for you know, the Eucharist and Roman Catholic theology. Now, I doubt it as to whether I should have this down, but anyway. There's another strand of Platonic thought. Have you heard the word pantheism before? Yes. Pantheism means that there's no distinction between God and nature and the universe. None at all. So, you know, I'm God, you're God, everything is God. No distinction whatsoever. Panentheism, now that doesn't sit well with Christian theology. Uh, because, you know, in Christian theology we believe that God created, and so he must remain somehow distinct from his creation. And so the idea that God is nature and nature is God doesn't sit very well. But because most of Christian theology has been based on philosophy, you have another word which is close to pantheism, and it's called panentheism. And it means all in God. All right? Pan, all, en, in, theos, God. Kind of like the unborn child is in the mother, and the mother is in some sense in the child. All right? So, although the mother seems to be greater than the child, uh, it's a kind of way that you can have your cake and eat it too. God can be transcendent, but on the inside. If that makes absolutely no sense, then that's fine. Because that's just simply the wine of Babylon, that's all. But it is the philosophical basis for the emerging church. All right? It's the philosophical basis for the emerging church. We'll see if we can try to make uh, some clarity out of this. Okay, how is the divine presence understood? Well, let's look at panentheism in the emerging church. This is an interesting article by Dr. Markovich in, uh, at Andrews University in Ministry Magazine. Uh, again, he's describing an emerging church uh, experience. Casual dress, physical rearrangement of seats and pulpit in order to create a more casual and relaxed atmosphere, candlelight, visual arts, icons, all types of music, the Eucharist, medieval centering or contemplative prayers, moments of silence. Again, as a phenomenon, this is not any different from what Buddhist monks do, from what the Desert Fathers have done in times past, from, from Ignatius... Loyal, uh, uh, his spiritual exercises, which gave birth to you know the the uh, the, uh, the the Reformation and the spirituality of the Counter Reformation, I should say, no different as a phenomenon. You turn your brain off, and you you cite meaningless things, and that's supposed to be prayer. So mystical practices, prayer labyrinths, des designated places for personal meditation, silence and prayer, and so forth, all of which have the purpose of making worship epic, experiential, participatory, image-driven, and connected. Notice what Gibbs and Bulger state in their book, Emerging Churches. You see, with panentheism, God is still infused in everything. 
but he's greater than the thing. Again, if that makes absolutely no sense, that's just part of the wine of Babylon, all right? So instead of profaning the church, secular music becomes holy. And therefore, the rest of their lives become holy as well. For alternative worshipers, music is Christian when they glorify God with it. Not because of the lyrics or because a Christian wrote it or played it. All things can be made holy as they are given to God, whether secular or not. That's because God is infused in all things. That's what makes it holy. So that's why when, you, when they're doing their centering prayers and all this type of stuff, they're looking to a God that is metaphysically, essentially, within. Okay? When the Bible says Christ in you, the hope of glory, it means the principles of the cross, the principles of the Word of God ingrained in you, not God in you in some kind of metaphysical, essential sense. I hope that makes sense. To emerging churches, all of life must be made sacred. Sacralization, that means the, uh, the making sacred of everything, in emerging churches is about one thing, the destruction of the sacred-secular split of modernity. Now everything's holy. No such thing as something being holy and something being unholy. But isn't that what the Bible says? When we lose the difference between what's holy and what's not holy, it's curtains, friends. Daniel chapter 5, you remember what they did in Babylon? When they put wine in the sacred vessels of God, that was it. They were done. They lost the ability to distinguish between the holy and the unholy. When that begins to happen, it's curtains, friends. Back to the Eucharist here for a minute. The Eucharist is the one constant throughout the centuries. It is the basis for Roman Catholic worship on account of transubstantiation. In the emerging church's effort to join together present worship forms with the past, the Eucharist is also central to its worship. In Roman Catholic worship, the presence of God in, is in the substance of the bread. I'm sorry, the presence of God in the substance of the bread is mediated to the congregation. In the emerging church, which assumes panentheism, this is combined with the presence of God that is mediated through everything else. This justifies all kinds of music. This combines Plato's two strands of thought. The emerging church, that's what it combines. This, listen to this analysis. Um, Peacock's connection of his prepositions with Luther's use of them in discussing the Eucharist is not coincidental. For the prepositions themselves belong to the definition of a sacrament. A sacrament is a visible thing that conveys invisible grace. All right, Like the Mass, like baptism can be a sacrament. That's something visible that then individual grace flows through. Now, back in the, days, back in the early Roman Catholic Church days, that, that presence of God was localized merely through those kinds of sacraments. When you get to panentheism and the emerging church... Anything and everything becomes a sacrament and a vehicle for the divine because the divine is infused in everything. Are you following me? All right. So, these prepositions of a sacrament, you know, uh, it, it's a sign of a physical thing, under, in, through which God comes. 
The debates back then is how does God come through the Eucharist? How does the real presence of God come through the Eucharist? The, the prepositions are thus intrinsic to sacramentalism. That's the idea that the cosmos and what is in it are sacraments. In other words, everything is vehicles for the divine, as well as to panentheism. Panentheism and sacramentalism refer to different aspects of the same reality, and sacramentalism becomes another defining characteristic of the panentheist position. In panentheism, by contrast to classical theism, the sacraments are not restricted to certain rites of the church. So God's grace, like in ancient times, does not simply come through the Mass. Okay? It comes through anything and everything now. So it's not restricted to certain rites of the church. The whole cosmos for panentheism is sacramental. For it is something under, in, and through which God comes. And the specific sacraments of the church are simply particular intensifications of the general sacramental principles, signs, symbols, and reminders that any and everything has the potential to become a full vehicle of the divine. Wow. Look at the relationship between the Eucharist, the immortality of the soul, and the divine presence here for a minute. This comes from Emerging Eucharist, Formative Ritualizing in British Emerging Churches. Understood in Roman Catholic theology, there is a further manner in which personal drama manifests itself that is not often discussed in Protestant evangelical circles. The recognition of dead ones at the present communion table. The idea of being surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses, Hebrews 12.2, around the Eucharistic table enables those who have suffered loss to sense being reunited with their loved ones in the anticipation of the Messianic banquet. Recently, on different occasions, reference was made to the presence of not only Christ at the table, but the presence of deceased loved ones. In, the, in a Lord's Supper meditation, one student who had lost a parent the past year expressed that it is at the communion table that he experienced his dad joining him around the table, breaking bread with him and drinking wine together in this eschatological event. Two weeks after this meditation, a visiting professor who had lost a child said that it was at the Lord's Supper he felt most united with his son and remembered that the child, too, was present at this event. This whole Platonic philosophy opens up the can of worms, friends. This dualistic philosophy. In the past, yes, the grace of God would come through the sacraments. But now at the communion service, you not only have the presence of Christ there, you have the presence of the deceased loved ones that are there as well. Notice this amazing theological analysis by Ellen White. I'll give you the reference in just a minute. It is as easy to make an idol out of false doctrines and theories as to fashion an idol of wood or stone. Have you ever thought about that? You thought idolatry was just, you know, bowing down to something that you could see, feel, hear, or touch. By misrepresenting the attributes of God, Satan leads men to conceive of him in a false character. With many... A philosophical idol is enthroned in the place of Jehovah, while the living God, as he is revealed in his word in Christ and in the works of creation, is worshipped by but few. I want you to notice something here. The word worship occurs here, but worship is based on how we conceive of God. 
And when we allow philosophical theories to come in and change our views of God, they will ultimately be expressed through worship. All right? So when we talk about changing the forms of worship, this is not a cosmetic change. It is a change that will rock this church to its very foundations. And that's why these things are not compatible with the three angels' messages in the sanctuary doctrine. They are simply not compatible. You try to join them together, it's going to cause an earthquake. So, philosophical idol, but the living God, as he's revealed in his word in Christ and in the works of creation, is worshipped by but few. I'll get, I'll get it to you in just a sec. Now, notice this amazing, uh, you know, amazing, it, thousands... What do they do? What does it mean to deify nature? Yes, like panentheism does. All right? If you believe that God is infused in nature, what you have essentially done is deify it. You've made a God out of it. Thousands deify nature, notice this, while they deny the God of nature, though in a different form. Idolatry exists in the Christian world today as verily as it existed among ancient Israel in the days of Elijah. The God of many professedly wise men, of philosophers, poets, politicians, journalists, the God of polished fashionable circles, of many colleges and universities, even of some theological institutions, is little better, not a great deal, but it's just a little bit better than Baal, the sun god of Phoenicia. Great controversy, page 583. Do you know what major doctrine, what major Seventh-day Adventist doctrine is compromised by panentheism? The Sabbath is forgotten. Let's figure out how. Great controversy, 437 to 438. The importance of the Sabbath as the memorial of creation, is that it keeps ever-present the true reason why worship is due to God. Because He is the Creator and we are His creatures, the Sabbath therefore lies at the very foundation of divine worship. Why? For it teaches this great truth in the most impressive manner as no other institution does this. The true ground of divine worship, not of that on the seventh day merely, but of all worship is found in what? The distinction between the Creator and His creatures. This great fact can never become obsolete and must never be forgotten. You accept panentheism, out goes the Sabbath. You, could, you accept Platonic philosophy with its dualism because the Sabbath is associated with time. Out goes the Sabbath. And when you have the Sabbath, you have the distinction between holy and holy, uh, unholy, do you not? Because the Sabbath is unlike any other day. So the Sabbath is forgotten. So just to kind of summarize here for a moment... When the sanctuary is abandoned, the word is not the source of authority. Because Jeroboam said they took counsel, 1 Kings chapter 12, 25 to 28. Didn't counsel with the word, though. When the sanctuary is abandoned, worship forms are grounded in culture. 
When the sanctuary is abandoned, nature worship is the result. When it is abandoned, the second commandment is violated. Have you ever thought about the difference between the first two commandments? Sometimes we might just kind of merge them together and think that they're the same, but they are, there are some distinct differences between the first two commandments. The first one says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That means no Baal, no Ashtoreth, no Chemosh, and so forth and so on. Those are false gods. But the second one says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any, uh, any graven image or any, anything, any likeness in heaven above, the earth beneath, the water under the earth. You shall not bow down uh, yourself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, it says. The second commandment places a restriction on our creativity. It says that uh, we cannot worship the true God with false forms. The first one is a prohibition against false gods. The second commandment prohibits us from worshiping the true God with false forms. Major difference between the two. So it places a limit on our creativity. It says, you know what? Uh, we're made in the image of God. We're creative. But yet, uh, we can't make a God out of our creativity and go to whatever lengths our creativity may suggest. There are limits. And when we transgress those limits, we end up worshiping another God, even though we think we're worshiping the real one. When the sanctuary is abandoned, just like in the days of Ahaz, people are demoralized. 200,000 women were taken captive, 100,000 valiant men slain. When the sanctuary is abandoned, there is no longer any difference between the holy and the unholy. Everything is now holy. When the sanctuary is gone, yes, doesn't matter, Dan, Bethel, but there was only one place that it was supposed to be set up. Um, everything is holy. The calves are sacraments. But later on, the whole host of heaven is, is a sacrament. And everyone is holy as well. Everyone can minister in this kind of worship. So, let's take a little closer look at the sanctuary, the centrality of it in the few minutes that we have as we think about what constitutes spiritual worship then. So, the central role of the sanctuary and worship. And here's the thought that I really want to get across. The, the symbols in the sanctuary point to spiritual realities. Mess with the symbols, and then we will transgress these realities. Let's see if we can figure this out. Uh, I'll get you the reference to this in just a second. I think it's in Christ Object Lessons. That we might become acquainted with his divine character in life, Christ took our nature and dwelt among us. Divinity was revealed in humanity. The invisible glory in the visible human form. Men could learn of the unknown through the known. Heavenly things were revealed through the earthly. God was made manifest in the likeness of men. So it was in Christ's teaching. The unknown was illustrated by the known. Divine truths by earthly things with which the people were most familiar. Notice this in Christ Object Lessons, page 17. In his teachings from nature, Christ was speaking of the things which his own hands had made and which he had qualities and powers uh, I'm sorry, and which had qualities and powers that he himself imparted. You know, I mean, if I was to create, I'd make, you know, I might make, you know, one or two or five varieties of flowers, but, I mean, you know, an endless variety? I mean, wow. That's, I mean, and that's just a flower. But each and everything that God had created tells us something about him. It's not him, 
but it reveals something about him. So that's kind of the, the logic of the thought where we're heading to when we think about the sanctuary. So if he imparted qualities and powers to the things of nature in order for nature to be the medium of divine truths, then there must be some specific qualities that illustrate specific divine truths. Now let's look at this for a minute as we think about the sanctuary. Now at the altar, what kind of animal was to be sacrificed there? What was the usual animal? The lamb. Well, what if you decided you didn't like that, and so you were going to put a tiger in its place? First of all, that thing's not going down when you try to take that knife and cut it and put it to its throat, okay? It is not going, it's going to fight you. It's going to devour you. Why did God choose the lamb? Was it an arbitrary choice? Obviously not. If you read Isaiah chapter 53, I'm not one that was raised around those animals, but if you read that chapter, you will recognize that the lamb will not resist. When it goes through that harrowing process, it will not do that. So you cannot just replace the symbol that God has given, and say, you know what, I want to do something else. When you do that, you will change the reality to which it points to. Well, also in the labor, you had what kind of liquid? Water, right? Well, I want to change that to soda pop or orange juice. You know, that's uh, you destroy what that symbol wants to accomplish. Water is a symbol of washing and regeneration. I don't know anybody who... Uh, I shouldn't make statements like this without, rest, without looking into the facts. But I, I don't know anybody that washes an orange juice. Okay, maybe I need to do some more research. Maybe I need to pick a better liquid. But uh, maybe there's some here that do. But I think you understand my point anyhow. There was a specific reason for why the water was chosen. Because it pointed to some work that God wanted to do. And so here you have also the Shekinah, God's visible manifestation, his invisible manifestation. You recognize, as we talked about Jeroboam, he sought to replace the invisible God with visible representations as, their, as, as mediums through which the divine could come. You know, that, that, that immediately strikes against the Sabbath. Because the Sabbath was not made out of any particular object. It was made out of a day. Something intangible, something invisible. Because if it were to be made out of anything in which this world exists, or anything in the material creation, it would automatically lessen our conception of God. And so here you have the invisible God dwelling with his people, who ultimately the word became flesh or tabernacled with us in John chapter 1, verse 14. In John chapter 17, verses 20 to 23, Jesus mentions I and you and you and me and my Father in us that we may be one. And he's not talking about some panentheistic interpretation of the being of God in us in such a way that we're actually divine. He's talking about the principles of God. The new covenant, the law written in our hearts and in our minds, in us. That's what he's talking about. Now, this I've got to say for later, because I need to do a whole bunch of amplification on that. The choirs were accompanied by strings. 
We're going to look at that later. That's my way of trying to get you back. And so as we wrap up this portion in the few remaining minutes, uh, the Holy Spirit, scriptures, sanctuary, theological foundations. I want you to look at something that took place within our church in 1901 at the Indiana camp meetings, and you'll not fail to see the Holy Spirit in this passage. It says, The things you have described as taking place in Indiana, the Lord has shown me, would take place just before the close of probation. Every uncouth thing will be demonstrated. There will be shouting with drums, music, and dancing. The senses of rational beings will become so confused that they could not be trusted to make the right decisions. And this is called what? Sure. People interpret that as the moving of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and so Ellen White is bringing this out. But notice what she says. The Holy Spirit never reveals itself in such methods. In such a bedlam of noise. This is an invention of Satan to cover up his ingenious methods for making of none effect the pure, sincere, elevating, ennobling, sanctifying truth for this time. Better never have the worship of God blended with music than to use musical instruments to do the work which last January was represented to me would be brought into our camp meetings. The truth for this time needs nothing of this kind in its work of converting souls. But isn't that the rationale, though? We need to bring in this kind of music. Why? So that we can use it as a means of converting people. But here, this says the exact opposite. It says, no, the truth doesn't need this. A bedlam of noise shocks the senses and perverts that which, if conducted aright, might be a blessing. The powers of satanic agencies blend with the din and noise to have a carnival, and this is termed the Holy Spirit's working. So what is it that constitutes spiritual worship? Obviously, if you were to ask some of these people that were experiencing this kind of worship, they would say, it was the Holy Spirit. Obviously, we were here. Didn't you sense his presence? But yet, the passage here says, no, that's not the way he operates. It's another spirit. Now think about this for a minute. You know when Saul was depressed and being tormented and called David to come in? You remember what instrument he played? Yeah, it was the harp, right? With the harp, you know, you have melody and harmony as being very primary. And when David uh, played and when he sang, those, those demons went away. So if one kind of music can chase the demons away, wouldn't it suggest that another kind might invite them here? No encouragement should be given to this kind of worship. Those things which have been in the past will be in the future. Satan will make music a snare by the way in which it is conducted, and so we're here because we want to know what comprises spiritual worship. Many people think that that is the Holy Spirit. But you and I should not, we're not the gauge there. It's the Word of God that's the gauge. That's found in Selected Messages, Volume 2, pages 36 to 39. So our appeal is this. But God will have a people upon the earth to maintain the Bible, and the Bible only is the standard of all doctrines and the basis of all reforms. The opinions of learned men, the deductions of science, the creeds, or decisions of ecclesiastical councils as numerous and discordant as are the churches which they represent, the voice of the majority, not one nor all of these should be regarded as evidence for or against any point of religious faith. Before accepting any doctrine or precept, we should demand a plain, thus saith the Lord, in 
its support. Great Controversy, page 595. That is what is at stake, friends. It is the Word of God that's at stake. If we turn our backs on the sanctuary, we're not going by the Word of God. We'll go by the way of Jeroboam, and it will not be long before Adventism implodes. But GYC is a, uh, is a testimony to the fact that it's not going to happen. God will have a people to move forward. And so our prayer is that we might think about what happened with Hezekiah in the past and enact these kinds of principles. Look at what Christ has done in the cleansing of the sanctuary, what he is doing now, and let that then invade our lives and move forward all the way up until the coming of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there's been a lot of material represented here. I just pray that... Uh, you will lead us and guide us in order to formulate opinions about what really constitutes spiritual worship. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for guiding us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.